when you look at the mountains and mountains of research that's coming out now that just shows that this is just good for business. Diversity and inclusion can be touchy. It can be overcomplicated and sometimes very nuanced and hard to get to grips with. And that's everything that we hope this podcast won't be. Welcome to the Digest from Diversely, where we take a frank, direct look at the stories of global allies, activists and advocates of DNI, understanding their journey and motivations to make the world a more diverse and inclusive place to be, as well as the ways in which they're currently doing just that. My name's Helen Maguire, and I've been active in the DNI space for many years. I'm the co-founder of Diversity, which is a tech platform that helps businesses achieve better diversity. And I can't promise we'll get everything right or cover every angle on this podcast. But what I can promise is that we'll learn together ways to make better approaches to this sometimes tricky and deep topic. In this episode of The Digest, we're speaking to Paula Newby, and Paula is the CEO and founder of Predixa.ai. She has a huge background in DNI um, from various different angles and now has created software that helps businesses to understand their data and analytics and reporting around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So let's dive in. Paula, hello. How are you? And where are you right now? Hello, Helen. Yes, I'm very well. I'm actually sitting in northwest London in the office of my parents' house. <laughs> and we were just talking about that. And your parents, you know, are approaching their 90s, actually, yes. now. Yes, they are. Absolutely. And I was just saying how that uh, when I'm out and about on the tube and whatever, I'm one of the few people still wearing a mask. But I'm very conscious that I need to protect my parents because they're obviously in a very uh, high risk yeah. area. But uh, yeah, no, it's and I should also say that although it, as we're recording this is what is it, the 7th of June or something, typically England is doing what it usually does with its summer and it's really cold outside. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Obviously. So, so, so much for summer. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it's better than the 45 degrees possibly that I'm sitting in right now in, in Dubai, but that may be questionable. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's lovely to have you on the podcast. And I know there's quite a bit that we want to dig into. But before we start, um, give me a little bit of um, background in your own words of, of your, your current business and what it does and what your role is there. Okay, well, I'm the uh, chief exec of Predixa. And what Predixa does in essence is we help organizations realize the social and the economic value of their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. So, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, let's just say we all, we're just talking, referencing the pandemic, it's affected absolutely everyone. And all companies virtually are facing growing calls for change. It's coming from particularly those people under 40, the millennials, the Generation Zs. And the boards need to do something. They need to react and they need, they need help in the organisational change because we see diversity, equity, inclusion as very much a different lens through which to view business transformation. And it's a huge job where to start. And what we do is we effectively gather data from internal stakeholders, such as employees, external stakeholders, customers, investors, suppliers, governments, and then combine that with some of the hard metrics to do a rapid analysis 
to show boards where they can focus to generate their social and the greatest social and financial impact put. And the, uh, the diagnostics that we used are driven by the power of artificial intelligence. So it means that a process that would have taken months and months and months using traditional methods can be done in a, a much shorter amount of time with deeper analysis and deeper insight and looking at the whole organisation. And where do you typically see those kind of holes or those spaces that businesses can do better? Is there a general pattern or does it depend on, you know, the the industry or or the size of business, for example? It's entirely down to each organisation. It's relative to their size. It's relative to their location. I mean, for instance, in the UAE, you know, one of the big drivers is gender equality. They're really pushing on that and doing very well, I may say. But then you look in places like uh, the USA, and of course, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, then perhaps them a little, you know, there's a much more pressure on organisations to be seen to be being more inclusive with different cultures and different ethnicities. So it really does depend on all sorts of factors. And some organisations will be more further advanced. And that's often down to perhaps a geographical location. So typically British, European and American organisations are more further advanced than maybe some companies in, shall we say, um, sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia, etc. So it's not a one size fits all at all. And what kind of businesses are you are you working with at the moment to help them with, with this? Well, we go across all sorts of different sectors. So we have been working with a large consultancy. We had a global consultancy company that was focusing in on customer experience. They had offices. I think they had about 10 offices around the world. And they recently absorbed other organizations too. And they were finding that around the world, the different offices were operating in silos and there was no overarching sort of common theme pulling people together. So we were able to highlight the different regional variations and where different regional focuses should be. We've worked with an oil and gas company. We're currently just about to start with a big construction company. So the fact is that, uh, you know, DEI is something that is a global issue and it Mm. affects every sector Every, as I said, every country to a larger or or a lesser degree, depending on where they are in the process. And of course, the other thing that's driving this change is the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And the deadline, you know, back in 2015, when 192 countries signed up for this, those 17 SDGs with a view to you know, removing poverty and improving the um, environment, the deadlines were set for 2030. Well, back in 2015, you know, that was 15 years, you know, 15 years ahead. Well, we're now halfway. Hmm. And of course, we've had the pandemic that has delayed progress and in some cases either halted or reversed progress so there's an awful lot of work to do and if governments are going to you know deliver on their promises then this is also affecting the sort of speed um, and uh, the impact of all the issues around diversity equity and inclusion. 
Absolutely. And um, in terms of, of, I suppose, your goals for Predixer, where would you like it to get to? I mean, you've mentioned that obviously there is a global element to it. And, and I really like your point around the maturity of global DE&I. It, it's a really, really relevant one. So where is your focus now and where would you like to, to move it towards? I suppose ultimately what we want, what we envision is that this is a self-service, we're aiming towards it being a self-service SaaS diagnostic application that sort of sits as a a vital part of every organization's means to find out, you know, how are we doing now? How can we improve? And it's part of continual improvement. Because as Mm. I said, what we see with a lot of of clients we're working for that divert, I mean, well, a couple of steps back, I've been involved in this field for many, many years. And when I was first involved in it, it was seen as very fringe and around the edges. And it usually um, was driven by perhaps a particular, you know, passion project from the CEO or something like that. And then time has gone on and now it's uh, it's becoming more and more mainstream. And as I mentioned when we first spoke, you know, the clamoring for change is coming from these particular demographic groups, the millennials and the Generation Zs, which are predicted, and they're, they're 40 and under now, and they are predicted to represent about 75% of the global workforce in about 20 years' time. So those voices of change are only just going to get louder and louder and louder mm. and and of course you've also got your generation alphas coming on you know who will join the clamoring for change so it seems it's very clear that this is something that's not going to go away and every organization is going to have to deal with it but what we see with many of our clients is that too often diversity equity inclusion and everything around that is sort of firstly often an organization will not have a board member responsible for it. So very few, I think it's less, it's something like 43% currently of the S&P 500. So the top 500 companies in the world, 40, only 43% of them have a head of diversity and inclusion that sits on the board. So that's the first challenge. And it tends to be sit underneath the uh, responsibility of HR. And then you'll probably have, we we often find that we have people much lower down the pecking order who have been given the responsibility Mm. for, you know, DEI initiatives. And it really has to have absolute, it it has to be elevated to the responsibility of the board. Mm. It has to have board level authority. In our view, the board needs to have their bonuses attached to KPIs mm. related to this, because once you have, you know, you, you've got, got it attached to financial benefit, then things happen. But as I said, we see this as something that, that stretches across the whole organization. It affects every aspect of the supply chain because it's people orientated. So it shouldn't just be something that's sort of sitting at the, you know, the edge of the board agenda. And of course, as you know, Helen, when you look at the mountains and mountains of research that's coming out now that just shows that this is just good for business. 
you know, the stats are all there. You know, you put more women on the board, you will see a 41% increase in return on equity, a 56% increase in operating results, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it needs to be elevated to a board position. And so what we see is boards need the diagnostics. They need to be able to see what's happening. They need to be able to see the impact on both the social and the financial values of their organization. And what they need is something that they can tap into very Mm. quickly and easily. And it becomes part of an ever moving incremental change and improvement over time. So that's where we would love to see Predixa in the future, just as something that becomes, you know, in the toolkit of every board board member to, to be able to help them achieve their social and financial um, values. I love your points, Paula. And I think if I could take that and, and just play it at pretty much every meeting that I ever have <laughs> at the very beginning or when I'm speaking to investors, because it's such you know, you put it across so eloquently and it's such a compelling argument, but it also just makes complete sense. You know, it is common sense that you need to have these insights if you want to improve something. Yes. And I wonder for you, you know, we we completely concur with with this, by the way, around data and the hands-on understanding of exactly where you sit. But I wonder for you where and when that switch occurred between as you rightly kind of say, the sort of fluffy exterior of DNI around sitting on a panel or sponsoring an event or doing a, a training or whatever it might be. I'm not saying they don't have an impact, but I'm saying they don't necessarily have the impact that people would like them to sometimes. When did that happen for you? When did that switch happen? To go back then in, in my career, as I said, I've been dealing with this for many, many years, even before such terms were invented. But I'll give you a sort of a little scenario and an explanation I started, actually, I started off as a textile designer. Um, I moved into the buying divisions of both Marks and Spencers at one point and then Next. Now, for your listeners, you know, they, they are well-known retailers in the UK. And back in the late 80s and early 90s, which gives you an idea of how long I've been doing this, um, <laughs> M&S, uh, Marks and Spencers and Next were absolutely in the forefront, out on their own, driving an agenda for ethical supply chains. And so as a buyer, I would go to factories and manufacturers and, uh, around the world. And sometimes the product was great and the price was great, but I didn't approve the supplier because of the way that they were treating their workforce. You know, and you told work. me a specific story about this, about, yes. if I recall, it was a factory in China China, that's right. Yes. yes. So exactly. Well remembered, Helen. Uh, so it was actually in a, a place in northeast China called Qingdao. And at the time, I was actually uh, consulting for an organization and they wanted a range of embroidered bed linen. And I'd been in discussion with this particular agent who was based in Hong Kong. And he said, Paula, we found the perfect factory for you. So we went to visit the factory. Long story short, we did the tour. And absolutely, the product was fantastic. The price was within range. But I said, oh, could I see the workers' accommodation, please? Now, in China and in in India and other places around the world, you know, the workers live for most of the year in workers' accommodation. So 
when I mentioned this, things got a bit tense, you know, and I went, no, I'd like to see the workers' accommodation. Mm. Anyway, we went round and no wonder they were a bit tense because the it, it was woeful. I mean, I, I realised, of course, I couldn't apply Western standards to a factory mm. in northeast China, but even taking that into account, and I've been doing it long enough to know what I was looking at, but the, the cooking facilities were appalling. The sort of shower facilities were really awful. And when I asked them, where does someone go to get a proper shower? Because it was almost like a stripped down wash principle that they mm. had. And I was proudly told that it was only a sort of a short three mile walk into town where they could use the shower facilities at the local swimming pool. And then the the area where the children played because of married workers that might have children. There was a fairly basic school, but there was a, a sort of a playground and it was just a bare sort of area of concrete. And it had sort of open sewers running down the two sides. Anyway, so that evening over dinner, the agent and the factory owner very excitedly, you know, so Paula, what did you think? And I said, well, you know, I thought the, the product is superb. I think the price we could work with. Great. So let's talk numbers. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take this any further. And they looked very surprised. And I said, because I can tell you don't really value your workforce. And I said, this is so short-sighted of you, because if you invest it, a little bit in the workers' accommodation to show that you value them, not only would you keep your best embroiderers, but you would attract the best embroiderers from other factories. This would give you competitive advantage. This would also increase your capacity, which means you could take on more customers, which would increase your revenues and your profitability, and your reputation would grow, and then it would be rinse and repeat, and you would get bigger and bigger and bigger. But at this stage, I'm not going to place the order. So things are a bit tense as I went to bed, as you can imagine. And then the next morning, as I was coming into breakfast, I was sort of grabbed by the agent and said, Paula, Paula, we've been talking and meeting and whatever. And we're going to do what you say. And I said, well, that's fantastic, you know, and keep me informed and, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Anyway, long story short, again, they did that. And it sort of pretty much went the way that I suggested. We were able to place the orders and they went on to become... Uh, major suppliers to most of the high street in UK and then on to US, etc. And the reason why, you know, I tell this story, I mean, apart from the fact that it has a nice happy ending, which I always <laughs> love, but the other reason is because that was sort of where it came from, really, the recognition that, yes, people can get very emotional and talk about a moral imperative you know, of doing the right thing. And yes, we all get that. But particularly now coming out of the pandemic, when budgets are under enormous stress, because companies have been stretched to the limit during the pandemic with broken supply chains, with having to accelerate their digital uh, developments, with problems with their workforce, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, the moral side of thing is all very well, but what really speaks, of course, is when it hits the top and the bottom line. Mm. And if you can prove that that's where the impact will occur, and as I mentioned before, it's it, yes, you've got your social value because that benefits your reputation and it stops the great resignation that's going on at the moment because people want to work for that company. But equally, it hits 
your financial requirements as well. And I, I sort of, you know, this was when, I mean, it wasn't so much that the light bulb came on, but it's a great illustration, that story of how you do the right thing and it perhaps doesn't even cost an enormous amount of money, mm. but the ramifications are exactly what you want. You want it to be hitting the top and the bottom line and all that reputational collateral that you're going to gain as well. Absolutely. And I think that's such a practical example of, of exactly how that works, whether it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago or, or today, that those parameters and those aspects still hold completely true um, mm. for any business. And mm. I wonder for you, because, you know, I don't get the sense that you got into this necessarily just from a business perspective. I mean, I don't get the sense that you started doing that job, you know, in retail because you wanted just to improve the numbers for M&S or for Next. What's your why behind getting into that in the first place? Why do you think you care to make this difference more than, you know, 100 other people who might be just doing the job to get paid? Well, it's very interesting because, uh, as I said, I'm back here in my parents' house. And um, my, um, first of all, my parents have a huge faith. And it runs like a rod of iron through everything that they do. And so we were brought up with that. And I think whatever faith you have, you know, when you have that as a base, it gives you a certain values upon which, you know, you sort of build your life. And it was interesting that um, my mother, I, I think it's probably for like 40 or 50 years, she has been an absolute advocate for fair trade. And one was one of the first people that started, that, that sort of read about it and then realised that this absolutely resonated with her core values. And so in this house that I'm sitting in right now, we haven't had a grain of coffee or tea or a banana or an orange that hasn't come with the stamp of fair trade you know, wrapped around it. And, and I suppose in many ways, it's, it, that's where it comes from, the sort of uh, those values that are instilled at an early age. And you realise that, I mean, they talk about integrity. It's the way you behave when no one's looking. And, mm -hmm. and when you feel it really in your heart, that um, I, I suppose that's where it sort of came from. But then, as I said, that was a sort of a detailed moral imperative within me. But then I realised that wasn't going to hold much sway in the uh, the world of commerce. So it, it had to be a combination of both. Exactly. You've got to translate it into the language that people understand. And um, that isn't always going to be your lived experience or your previous yeah. experience. And I really love that. I mean, hats off to your to your mum. What did that look like for you when you were growing up, apart from the fact that, you know, the, the fair trade coffee beans and so on? How did that seem on a day-to-day -day basis? What was she actually doing? Well, it, I mean, she was out there, for instance, you know, in the church, you know, running coffee mornings, for instance, she made sure the coffee that was at the church coffee mornings was fair trade. She would go out and attend meetings to find out, you know, what was happening and the, the impact of how making a stand, you know, at the banana counter at Sainsbury's, you know, knock on how that helped back in the Dominican Republic or, or whatever, and really understanding the importance 
that little changes can make. And of course, we all know that, you, you know, one person can't change the world, but it is about incremental changes. It's about doing your bit and knowing I, I'm a great believer in, you know, being able to look at your reflection in the bathroom mirror mm. in the morning and, and be sort of proud of what you see rather uh, in terms of, right, I, I, I didn't compromise. I've stuck with it, you know, and I, I sort of learned that from, from both my parents, really, but definitely in terms of my mum and her approach to uh, fair trade. And I say we've, the standards have remained for all these the years. Bar, the bar has been set. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I presume that probably extended to, you know, the way in which you as a family would have interacted with, with your local community as well and kind of what you saw from a behavioural perspective on that kind of front. Well, definitely. And um, again, you know, I, I, mean, I say I was brought up with a, um, attending church and, and all that sort of thing, but it's any faith. And yeah. there are so many faiths around the world that are integral to a community. And it's interesting that on the issues of diversity, equity and inclusion, and particularly things like gender equality, um, one of the areas that we help organisations with as well is how they integrate the community into uh, or integrate into their community because the research has shown that First of all, an organisation, particularly a large organisation that employs many people, has an enormous impact on the local community, number one. And that if an organisation can both employ women, for instance, or get involved in community activities that help to promote women's independence and, um, you know, starting their own businesses or supporting them, whatever. The fact is, if women feel comfortable and supported, then they will stay. And of course, they will bring up their children and then the community grows. They can be so pivotal to the health of a community. And so many faiths, of course, do work closely with communities. And again, that's something that that is very important in our approach. We don't just look at the organisation and help them achieve their internal sort of uh, social and economic values, but equally the wider area and the impact in the uh, communities, because it has been shown, particularly on aspects like gender equality, that um, that is pivotal in ensuring things like you know reduction of poverty and um, better more balanced societies yeah absolutely and and you know I I completely agree with that and and just in terms as well of being reflective of the community that you you serve or you know that you're in if you're more physically based employer is so important that Mm -hmm. you know you're reflecting the diversity that surrounds you Um, And if that, you know, if you're 80-20 male, female, then that's hardly the case, is it? No, exactly. And as I said, these these millennials, Generation Z, etc., quite rightly want to work in organisations that reflect the world that they see. And with their explosion on social media and, you know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, of course, and we've got the, you know, and and then latterly the pandemic with all of the mental anxiety that came Mm. from that. You know, it is um, organisations now and boards are being challenged by these demographic groups to say, prove to me that you care. Prove to me that you value not just my contribution 
to the bottom line, but the community and everybody else and show me that you are an inclusive organization. And one of the things that we are really passionate about is, you know, we have these acronyms, DEI, but actually we believe it all starts with an inclusive workforce. Because if you have an inclusive workforce where people feel they can be themselves and are respected and valued and listened to and that they can bring their whole self to work, then you take an inclusive culture that nurtures and supports a diverse workforce where everyone is treated equitably. Mm -hmm. So you almost go IDE in the sequence, you know, then the magic can happen because people feel that they will, you know, share ideas, they'll come up with new innovative solutions, and that will drive the business forward. So it sort of all starts with the inclusive culture in our opinion. I think exactly. And I think it's a question I sometimes ask actually on this podcast or more generally is what comes first D or I, and we never, you know, we never get to a clear, it is a complete chicken and egg question in in my view, because it takes a very brave person from an underrepresented group, let's say, to be that first person in order to break, you know, whatever the the typical is for that business and to go in there and and be that first person, whether it's from a racial or ethnic or gender or disability or or whatever focus it might be, you kind of have, you sort of rely on the courage of people and of candidates to do that initially, because without that, you'll never break, you'll never break the cycle. No, well, and as we know, we're all subject to, you know, biases, conscious and unconscious. Yeah. And it does take a long time. That's why I say it has to, first of all, it has to come from the top responding to this clamoring you know for change which has come from the bottom as it were a groundswell of opinion but you've got to react from the top the board has got to you know take that baton and run with it and then create help to create an organization where people feel psychologically safe in order to be able to express some of their biases to share things so it can come out into the open and express things and and realize um, and trying to get people to sort of, you know, that expression, walk a mile in my shoes type of thing. Well, that's only going to happen if you've got uh, coming from the top complete support for this. And know as well that it's about transformational change. Any transformational change is not a quick fix. It will take a long time. You will go forward a few steps. You will go back some steps. But ultimately, if you take it, you know, you you find where the sort of low hanging fruit is, if you will, you understand really where, get an overview of where your issues are, find where you're going to get the biggest change as quickly as possible, work on those and just nibble away slowly, 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 because it will take time. And this is why we talk about it being transformational change um, and working at it incrementally, but looking holistically at the whole of the organisation. You've had a fascinating journey in, into this space, and um, I can I can just tell hearing you speak what hands-on experience you've had and, and probably some of the difficulties that you faced, you know, getting to this point with, with Predictor. It's not easy because, you know, I always say with DNI Tech, which is essentially what you and I have both founded or co-founded in my case, you're building an industry. You're not just building a business. It is, mm-hmm. it is a brand new way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. It is a new industry. It's something that you have to kind of convince people of. What's been your biggest challenge in, in setting up Predictor? 
Um, well, it is about being a disruptive approach, definitely. And as you've just indicated, Helen, when that when something is different, it takes people a while to sort of get to grips with it. And so we've spent a lot of time, almost as I am today, in a sort of educational mode, you mm. know. The other major issue is, as I alluded to earlier, is that so often when you do manage to get to speak to somebody on the issues surrounding diversity, equity and inclusion, they are often at not necessarily a senior enough level mm. to be able to sort of accept such a disruptive approach. So that's that's been a challenge. And then I would also say that there are so many organisations that are facing this and they're doing the box ticking exercises because it is so huge. So they'll say, well, we do our annual employee engagement survey. So we've got that covered. That's fine. Yeah. And you think, well, no, you haven't. And um, also, you know, in our experience, you know, I'm afraid employment engagement surveys are usually too sort of narrow in terms of the way that they, the number of questions that they ask and the way they're phrased really do not elicit any data of real worth. And then the people who are left with this sort of thin, weedy results mm. and whatever are put under pressure to, well, come on, come up with some ideas, so that, some initiatives so we can get things moving. And because they're not done with any real depth of analysis, you're not getting the real, you're not really peeling back the layers of the onion and finding yeah. out what people feel. Also, once a year is no good for crying out loud, you know, things change so rapidly now that then the workforce then just sort of like, well, that was useless. I mean, I know we've got to fill it in, but, you know, it's not really exactly. worth it. There's no real incentive. There's no real impetus. No. There's no there's no sense that this is actually being valued or really means anything. I think to a lot of people, that's if people fill it out or if they fill it out accurately at all, to be honest. And we feel exactly the same. It just seems like a a nice thing to do, but essentially isn't going to change anything and hasn't changed anything. I mean, I don't know how long employee engagement surveys have been around, but I don't see them shifting the needle a great deal to this point. So let's try something different. Yeah, no, I I completely get that. Um, I think we face similar challenges in our business as well. And I suppose my my last question for you, you know, my observation from, from hearing you speak and from our previous conversations and so on, I mean, your parents must be super proud of, of you having taken over their, their spare bedroom for a while and be, you know, be running this business from the UK for now. And I, I wonder what it is you're most proud of. I suppose at the end of the day, you know, I'm a firm believer that you just you just want to leave a footprint in the sand. You know, you've just got to make a difference. Why, otherwise, what's the point? And with the organisations that we have worked with, and also stuff that I've done in, in the past in my, my career, as I mentioned earlier, just seeing the difference. I'll, I'll give you just a quick example. We worked with one organisation. They've got 
offices in four countries, but their main head office is in India. And it's a tech company and they're based down in um, Bangalore, which, as you perhaps know, is the sort of, you know, Silicon Valley of India. And they were really, really struggling to attract the right caliber of staff, the, the sort of, you know, the engineers and the programmers and the uh, data analysts, because there were so many other companies in Bangalore. And so they were, they were really spoiled for choice in terms yeah. of potential um, employees. And uh, they didn't want to pay top dollar. They couldn't afford to do that. And they ran Predixa and um, they came out with a really strong score on their uh, the inclusivity of their culture and also overall of DEI. And of course, they were able to publish that. And once they published that in press releases and things, they are now inundated with quality CVs and resumes because their target, you know, uh, their targets for the employees that they want to come to work for them are absolutely responding to the fact that they can see in this organisation that um, this is an organisation that cares for its workforce and has a, a verifiable and credible, you know, published uh, data to show this. So it's just making those little changes. And I know that, you know, as I said, it's, it, it'll take time and incrementally, but it, you, you just have to get those wins where you can. And um, they, they're very satisfying. When you have a vision and then you can realize it and see it exactly working. it's brilliant and and that's such a yeah i i love that story and that transparency makes such a massive difference um mm. to businesses and and to candidates even if you know we always say even if you're not where you ideally want to be just demonstrating that you're trying and yes. that you have these goals internally and that you've made a certain amount of progress, even if it's tiny over the last couple yes. of years or whatever it might be, just gives people that sense that there could be a place for them in yes. your business. And sometimes from the outside, particularly with tech companies and finance companies, which are also businesses that we work a lot with, actually, that's quite difficult because they are seen as very male dominated. I love the work you're doing and I, I especially love your journey into it. it. It's so genuine and I can see that. And we talked a little bit before about yes. putting these um, putting these chats on, on YouTube because what I get to see, not everybody else can get to see. And I just see your face kind of, you know, light <laughs> up and, and it's such a genuine sense of of purpose and of progress. So oh, thank you so thank much you. for the work you're doing and, and thanks for sharing it today. Uh, it's been an absolute delight, Helen, and lovely to have spent time with you. Thank you. So that was Paula. Thank you so much, Paula, for sharing those incredible insights into DNI. I think you can hear the wealth of experience and knowledge that, that Paula has in both her background and her current business, uh, which is helping companies everywhere to get to grips with their data and analytics and reporting around DNI, which um, is a new space for lots of people and uh, a super important starting point. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you could hear that in the recording. And as you guys probably know by now, um, this podcast is all about allies, activists, and advocates of DNI and what they're doing and, and where they're from and, and why they're doing it, essentially. And if you think you're one of those people, please do reach out, Helen McGuire on LinkedIn. Um, and check out our resources as well on diversely.io. There's a whole bunch of free resources there and guides and so on if this is a space that you're into. And uh, I will catch you next time. See ya.